Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. Turn to uh, Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to start today. We will get to Colossians shortly. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these Ten Commandments here. We thank you, God, that your word is revealed uh, from heaven to us. It is your very word, the infallible, inspired, inerrant, revealed word of God. We thank you that you give it to us, Lord, and that there is life in the scriptures, Lord. It reveals the way of salvation. We thank you for sending your son Jesus for us, who lived the perfect life, Uh, who took our sin upon him and gives us his righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit who fills us, we can walk in your ways, we can have the fruit of the Spirit, we can display it in our lives, and we can walk the narrow path. We pray, Lord, as we look at your word today, that you would use it to uh, mold us, to change us, to transform us, and do it all for your glory. Amen. So these are the Ten Commandments. I want to focus just briefly, almost as a way of introduction, on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. Why is it the first commandment? Because it is foundational for all the other commandments. And what we see is that God is over all. He's over all. And he has divine rights over all. And this gives us the other nine commandments that aren't a subjective code, that are true for some and not for others, but it's true for all, everywhere, 
at all times, in all places. This can only happen, though, if there's a divine lawgiver, someone who is over it all and tells you what to do and not what to do. Um, His word is binding. Why? Because he created us, he rules over us, and he has rights over us. In other words, what he says goes. His world rules because his word is always right because God himself is always right. He doesn't lie, he doesn't cheat, he doesn't steal, he doesn't sin. The Ten Commandments tell us a whole lot about God. They show us all the things that he wants us to be, and part of the way they do it is by defining who he is, but also part of the way they do it is by telling us what not to do. We see that he is a moral and upright God. And brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is our God, Yahweh. One of the things that was somewhat unique was that the other deities, you could actually even say for, since creation, the other deities that, that tried to come along, these false gods that really weren't gods, but the gods that the other nations worshipped, um, they were considered local deities. So you would have a god of the sea, or you'd have a god of the land, or you had a, a god of the woods, or you would have a god of the desert. That's what the pagan nations believed. But that has never, ever, 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 ever been the case with the one true God. He's not confined to a local place. Think about it even when you get to Exodus. That's why they can go into the promised land with confidence. Like, oh, we've got a problem because God's going to be on this side of the river and we're crossing into that side of the river. How's that going to work? No, God is everywhere. The true God is what we would call omni presence. So he doesn't say to them, oh, I, I, I can't cross the river. That's not my territory. But any of the local gods, any of the false deities back then, they, yeah, there would have been a god of the river. There would have been a, a god of the, of the desert. There would have been a god of, of the mountains. So as you crossed into those different areas, you would make sacrifices to appease that god so that he would be kind to you when you were in his own little territory. But think about it. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, I mean, it was always with them. Forty years, it was always with them, regardless of where they traveled. What was it signifying? Like, God would never leave them. He would never leave them. Uh, Look briefly just at Psalm 139. Here we see the omnipresence of God right before us. Psalm 139, let's start in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be a night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And what are we seeing? 
everywhere. God is everywhere. He is not contained to a specific location. So when we talk about his omnipresence, it's the idea that God is present at every point of space with his whole being. Not just part of him here and part of him there and part of him over there. He is there everywhere with his whole being. And additionally, he does not have size or spatial dimensions. He's unlimited with respect to space. Even if you look at um, one more passage and, and then we'll move on, uh, Amos chapter 9. Amos 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Here God is talking about the, the, the punishment, the discipline that's coming upon them. But his point is like, they will not escape. They might try to escape, the wrath that's about to come upon them, but regardless of where they go, God knows where they're at. Even if you think of just briefly Jonah, I mean, did he really think he could escape? Right? I mean, you got, if you think about it, you got, you know, Jonah, and then he's getting on the boat, and then you got Nineveh here, right? And he really just needed to go that way. But what happens? I mean, he does like this giant circle, right? He had to go through a whole bunch of things to get him to where God wanted him. But he could not escape. He couldn't escape. Wherever he went, he couldn't escape. Well, that's really the point. When when we're talking about God, God who is everywhere, who sees all things, he, he has all the power. He's in control. He's the one at the top, and he rules over all. So he calls the shots. And this is the God who gave us the Word of God. I mean, he gave us the Word of God. We have the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, and every single word, every single jot and tittle, as Jesus says, it's all his Word. Not man-made, but God-breathed. This is the Word that, that teaches us and admonishes us. And the point with that first commandment is not just that he's just first among all the gods. There is a a, a belief, and some of them practiced it uh, back then. Even the Israelites fell into it at times, called henotheism. Henotheism. But that still means they believed in other gods. They would just put put Yahweh at the top, but they'd still have maybe uh, on their shelf other idols. So they'd have other gods. They'd still say, well... Yahweh's at the top, but there's also these other idols that, that we do. And you read the history of Israel, what happens? Like, they're, they're, they've got one foot with Yahweh and one foot with Baal. 
One foot with Yahweh, one foot with Molech. I mean, they, <clears throat> they, want, they want their cake and eat it too. They want it both ways. So <clears throat> there was a syncretism of sorts at times. And what did God say to them? Oh, hey, that's acceptable. I'm good with that. <clears throat> I mean, think for a moment, uh, ladies, if, you're, if your husband came home one night and had on his arm another woman, and he said, honey, I want to in- introduce you to this uh, other lady, and um, she's going to be living with us, and, you know, and, and um, everything's great, though, because you're still number one, but she is number two. Would that be acceptable? No. Not at all. And if, if the wife got upset about that, would we be like, well, why is she so bent out of shape? No. It'd be very understanding. She should be bent out of shape. Well, guess what? Our God is a jealous God. He's a very jealous God. And he says, you can only have one God, and I'm it. He wants us to be faithful to him. 100% complete allegiance. So it's not both and when it comes to God. It's either or. You have to choose. You can't have both God and a false God. You can't have both God and whatever idol you want to serve. You have to choose. He is a jealous God that wants 100% allegiance. This makes sense, though. If he's the only one, if he's the creator, if he rules over all, it makes sense that he wants complete allegiance. Even if you think about the Israelites, they're being led in, in the wilderness for 40 years, and right before they go into the wilderness, right, right before they're, they're brought out of Egypt, you know, you, you have the 10 plagues. What's the last plague? Y'all remember it? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn male. So that's the 10th plague. The firstborn male dies. Animal and human. Unless what? Unless there's blood, right? Unless there's blood around the doorframe. And then the, the avenger of death, the angel of death comes on the night of Passover. I mean, it's called Passover because the angel passed over, passed over the Israelites. What happened to all the Egyptians? They didn't, they didn't use the blood. Death. Death of the firstborn uh, animal, male, and death of the firstborn child. Death. But what does God make the Israelites do with their own animals and children after that? In Exodus 13, well, just look there, why don't you, since we're already in the Old Testament. Exodus 13. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So the firstborn was his. And what did they have to do? Firstborn uh, male, animal born, either had to be sacrificed or depending on what animal it was, you you could redeem it with the sacrifice of another animal. But that firstborn was God's. What did they do with the firstborn uh, male children? They had to be redeemed. They were redeemed with money. So uh, an offering had to be made to redeem them. 
What's the message there that's being given? Well, one, I mean, God's still over it. He owns it all. Two, the message is, um, it's a reminder that what happened to Egypt, that, that could have been us too. That could have been us. God was gracious. God was gracious to have the blood and tell them how the angel of death could pass over. And every time, think about it, every time a firstborn male animal was birthed, it was a reminder of how God was their redeemer, how he had taken them out of the land of Egypt. They would recall the Exodus. Every time a firstborn son was birthed, they had to redeem that child. And it was a reminder, it was a reminder how God delivered them out of Egypt. And listen to this, he, re, he, he delivered them out of Egypt at no cost to them. What did it cost them? I mean, they just had to follow, right? They just had to go. They believed, they followed. And, but <clears throat> it didn't actually cost them anything. God provided it all for them. And not only that, when they're leaving, what does it say that the Egyptians did? It gave them gold and silver and jewelry. And it says, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they, they left better than they came. At no cost to them. So no animals died in Egypt. No children died when that angel came. It was a reminder of God's grace. It was a reminder of his goodness to his children. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing God. Yahweh, he's given us his word, and we have it right here. Right here. The scriptures. And that brings us to, to Colossians chapter 3. So turn there. Here's what it says in Colossians 3. We've been working through it, and we've gotten to verse 16, so that's where we're picking it up today. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In verse 16, there is one command in that verse. One command. And it's, let the word of Christ dwell. Let it dwell. Sometimes when we hear the let it, that it sounds more passive, but it is, a, it is a command that is there in the Greek. It's basically saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let it be there. Let it enrich you. So what does this look like? Well, there's three things that it shows us that it looks like. What does the word of Christ dwell in us ritually look like? We get three, basically, participles. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. So let's look at these <clears throat> each briefly. And I'll, I'll put them more into commands for us so that they're better understood. First, we need to receive instruction from the Word. Receive instruction from the Word. We want to learn. We want to gather information. We want to grow in knowledge. But listen, that's not enough. Receiving instruction has implicit with the idea of following out the instruction. In other words, we're not just gathering information and gaining information for information's sake. There's more to it than that. Sometimes <clears throat> people get more focused on the very finest of no nuances of Christianity and go 
five or six levels deep with their theology. And they focus on the intricacies of Daniel's prophecies or the nuances of the hypostatic union. There's a place for that. But guess what? Some people like that get more focused on that than they are focused on growing in Christ. They want the head knowledge, but have a little concern for the heart knowledge. They want Christianity, and they might know Christianity, but they know very little of Christ. So I say, yes, gain information about the Word, but that's not the primary focus. You need knowledge to grow in your relationship with Christ, yes. But my point is this. Don't let the Word simply inform you. We're not called to let the Word simply inform us. We're called to let it transform us. So information is not enough, and information is not the goal transformation is the goal. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. Not informed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, how do you do the testing to discern what the will of God is? Well, you're transformed. You're transformed. You're not, you're not informed. You're transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. You know, present tense there. We're being transformed. It's a process. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Not informed, but transformed. You can have tons of knowledge, but if, if you don't have much fruit of the Spirit, you're doing it wrong. Tons of knowledge, but not walking the narrow path, you're doing it wrong. Tons of knowledge, but living however you want, you're doing it wrong. What does Acts 2 say, verse 41? Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, many people heard that word, right? Many people heard it, they got the information. But 3,000 received it. They received it. Only certain people received it. So today, even right now, like all, all people present, they're hearing the word preached, but will you receive it? Hearing and receiving are two different things. So <clears throat> make sure to receive instruction from the word, and then also make sure to receive nourishment from the Word. It, inst it instructs us in how to live, but you also want to receive nourishment from the Word. And guess how that happens? Well, one, through the preaching of the Word, but two, just regular times in the Word. If we want to be people of the Word, we need to be people in the Word. If we want to be people of the Word, we need to be people in the Word. Regular, consistent. A lot of times, some people struggle with that. Um, a, Bible, a Bible reading plan, there are so many of them out there, a Bible reading plan can help you stay on track. And if it's too much to read through it in one year or two years, I mean, set it at a pace, but it, it keeps you consistent. When, I, when I'm on a Bible reading plan, I'm amazed at, at how much it helps me stay focused on Christ and walking with Him. When I'm not, and I'm just kind of free-floating it, I've realized that 
sometimes like a lot of time can pass and I'm just like, man, when, when was the last time I was in the Word? Oh, it's been a couple days. Why? Because you're just kind of free-floating it. We need regular time in the Word. We need to be disciplined to get in there. But we're blessed to have God's Word. We're blessed to have it. Why would we not want to be in it? So it can't dwell there if there isn't space for it. So we have to make space. That means we have to throw off whatever entangles, as Hebrews 12 talks about, and then receive the Word. Take it in. The Word wants to have a residence in your soul. In addition to the Word, you want to take in great teaching. You only have so much time. And, and it feels like we don't have much time, but we only have so much time. Uh, podcasts, articles, books, you can only read so much. You can only take in so much. I just want to encourage you, choose wisely. Listen to that which edifies and builds up. Listen to that which encourages, because there's so much garbage out there. There's a lot of garbage. A lot of garbage that masks itself as Christianity. A lot of garbage that masks itself as, as true and wholesome, as pure. It's just, it's rubbish. But there are many excellent resources. Listen, I got this, I got this own little written rule for myself. If I'm going to eat, um, if I'm going to eat like dessert, like I can, you can only take on so many calories, right? Until you start to put on weight. And so I'm picky I'm picky with my desserts because I can only eat so many calories until it starts to show. <clears throat> listen, you can only listen to so much. So you, you, have to, you, you have to be picky with your choices. You have a quantified period of time. You have to be picky with your choices. There are good books out there and there are great books. There are good podcasts and there's great podcasts. There's good articles and there's great articles. There's good stuff on social media and then there's a lot of trash on social media. Take in the great. Take in the great. Take in the great. Don't, don't, don't settle for anything less. Each one of us should want to build up our faith. Do you want to build up your faith? I want to build up my faith. Look at Acts 20. Verse, verse 31, Acts 20. This is Paul. He says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. All right, did you notice what it says? I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. It's able to build you up. But here's the thing. I mean, if we, just, if we just take the Word and we put it over on a shelf and then we walk away and it's over there, I mean, the Word of God, it can build me up. True? But how does it do that? Just sitting on the shelf? No, I mean, we have to receive it. We want the instruction. We want the nourishment. And the only way we can do that is if we're in it. So yes, the Word of God builds us up 
And how does it accomplish that? By us feasting on it. By us reading it. By us dwelling on it. Meditating on it. It has to be present before us. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. Paul, in part of this verse, he's actually quoting what the Corinthians were claiming, and then he kind of rebuts it, and then, he, and then he quotes them again, and then he rebuts it again. So sometimes people, people wrongfully use these things because he says in 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He, he's quoting that all things are lawful, and some of your Bibles will actually put quotes around the all things are lawful. That's what the Corinthians were saying. That's not what Paul's saying. He's quoting them. So all things are lawful. He's saying, but not all things are helpful. And then they're saying, <clears throat> all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things build up. Which means what? Well, some things tear down, right? And what did they do in the Old Testament with things that didn't build up? They tore them down. What were the things that they tore down? The false altars, the false idols, the false gods. That's what later in Exodus 34, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. We, we, we tear down stuff that isn't helpful. We tear it down. Not all things build up. So we're wanting to nourish ourselves on the word of God. We've got to remind ourselves, not all things build up. Not all things build up. We tear down, we tear down, we tear down whatever hinders. We cast aside whatever sin drags us down. 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You've heard this word deconstruction. Maybe you've heard that word used. Listen, we don't need to try and adopt the language of the culture so that, that we can fit in. That never works. It's really just a synonym for deconverting, which means falling away from the faith or walking away from the faith. You hear people saying, I'm deconstructing my faith. Does that even sound positive? I mean, how about instead, I'm building up my faith? That's a lot more positive. How about God is doing a sanctifying work in me? That sounds positive. How about I'm studying this issue to see what God's Word says. But oftentimes, the people that talk about deconstructing their faith, they're reading their Bible less and less. And many times, they've stopped reading their Bible. And they're not studying the Bible to see what it says for whatever issues that they say they're studying. So first, let me just say, for anyone here, like, one, if, if you have questions about Christianity, about Jesus, about God, like, ask them. There are great answers to any of your questions. I'm not afraid of your questions. Your parents aren't afraid of your questions. You can ask questions. There are great answers. And I remember a young man years ago uh, 
claiming on Facebook, he walked away from the faith, he claimed he couldn't ask questions. That, that same young man sat in my office and asked me question after question after question after question with no judgment on my part and me giving him, to the best of my abilities, answers to those questions. And so sometimes that whole, oh, I can't ask questions, I've yet to come across a church or a pastor who's taken that stance or position. We can't ask questions in the church. Now, I'm sure there are churches out there like that. I've not yet met a pastor like that, though. I've not yet come across a church like that. The vast majority, from what I've seen, of conservative evangelical churches, they will welcome the questions. Why? We don't have anything to hide. We don't have anything to be afraid of. And most of the questions that are being asked, at one point or another, I ask those same questions myself. So, uh, we're not afraid for your questions. Parents, make sure you communicate that to your children. You're not afraid of the questions. If they are questioning their faith, let them do that. Give them the environment to do it. Give them the resources to walk with them through that. But at least have the dialogue and the willingness to let them have those questions. It's very important. So, if we're going to talk about uh, deconstruction, well, here's what Alyssa Childers says. She says, um, the way the word is most often used in the deconstruction movement has little to do with objective truth and everything to do with tearing down whatever doctrine someone believes is morally wrong. So, you know, I, I don't like that God says marriage is only between a man and a woman. I'll deconstruct it so that God actually says gay marriage is okay. That's pretty much how it goes. And deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. The word itself is built, if you look into the roots, upon postmodernism, and it really carries the, bag, uh, the baggage of moral relativism. The idea is, is do what you feel is right to you. You do you. I mean, how many, I've heard that at least a handful of times just in this past week. You do you. You realize how, how subjective and relative that is. Like, you do you. Yes, if, it, if you feel like doing whatever you feel like doing, you go ahead and do it. That is absurdness. You do you. Okay, I feel like um, murdering my neighbor. You do you. I mean, that's some people doing them. You do you. That, that is so relative. That is so relative. And it's antithetical to the teaching of the Bible. So you talk to the deconstructionists, the people that are proponents for it, and the idea is really, I don't, I don't like what the Bible says. I don't like what it says. So then I'm going to change my mind and use a fancy word to mask it so that everything, everyone thinks I'm cool. Listen, if you have a cracked window on your house and a, and a couple people, pieces of siding with holes in it, <clears throat> you, don't, you don't tear down the whole thing, do you? And then just bulldoze your house? No, what do you do? You get a new window. You get the siding replaced, at least those pieces, right? But people that are deconstructing, that's not what they're doing. They're, they're tearing down the whole structure. They're even removing the foundation. And then what do they do? They rebuild it in their own strength, in their own way. And usually what, what they end up with is something that's not even recognizable as Christianity anymore. It's something completely different. 
And the people who walk away, where do they go? What do they go to? Because it does seem, you know, especially when a well-known person walks away from the, from the faith, like it, it, makes, it makes a splash, it makes an impact. Here's what uh, one person said. One infidel can make great excitement, but I will tell you on what principle it is. It is on the principle that if a man jumps overboard from an ocean liner, he makes more excitement than all the 500 who stay on the deck. But the fact that he jumps overboard does not stop the ship. Does that wreck the 500 passengers? It makes great excitement when a man jumps from the lecturing platform or from the pulpit into infidelity, but does that keep the Bible or the church from carrying millions of passengers to the shores of safety? No. So here's the question, what is it that they go to? What great message, after they've deconstructed their faith, what great message do they have to deliver to us? I mean, I'm, I'm actually asking the on, an honest question. Like, what is it? I mean, go talk to those people. They've walked away from the faith. Okay, friend, like, tell me the great hope that you have. Tell me this amazing insight that has now radically changed your life. There's nothing. There's nothing. Have they gone to another religion? 99.99% of the time, no. They go to nothing. They, they go to nothing. Do they have an answer for the world's woes? No. They go to nothing. They have no foundation. They've torn it away. But what does Proverbs 14 say? The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. They're in folly, and they tear down their house. So it's like doing work on a house. People who are deconstructing, <clears throat> some of them downplay initially at least how big a deal it is. The issue is not that they're changing out light bulbs or getting new silverware. No, in fact, they're not even remodeling a room. They're setting the whole building on fire and they're watching it burn. And even that's not good enough. After it's burned down, they come in with a giant bulldozer and tear out the foundation itself. Poof, it's gone. Listen, <clears throat> if you come, and probably just about every believer comes at some point in their walk to, a, I'd say, a crisis of faith, that's a lot different than when we're talking about deconstructing. Francis Schaeffer and many other people, they will talk about that crisis of faith and they had to figure out, hey, is what I believe what I really believe? <clears throat> that's kind of doing what Paul tells us to do. Test yourself to see if you're still in the faith. But walking away from the Word of God and denying it completely, that's not acceptable. Having questions and working through them, great. But, but here's where you got to turn for the answers. It's objective. Why? Because the one who wrote it is objective. He reveals his objective truth to us so we can, we can trust his objective word. And there's only two ways for us to live. For Jesus, walking with him. Against Jesus, living as you please. There's no middle way. There's no middle way. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew 7? Enter through what kind of gate? The narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to 
destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So Jesus mentions two ways. There's a right way, the narrow way, and there's a wrong way, the broad way. And second, notice he mentions two destinations. What does he say? The broad way that leads to destruction. The narrow way that leads to life. There's only two destinations. So we have one of two ways, Jesus' way or our way. So we want to make sure that we are receiving the instruction right from the Lord. We want to make sure we're receiving the enrichment and nourishment. Notice back what it says in Colossians. Dwell on it. Let it dwell in you richly. I just just like that word. I, I don't even think you could pick a better word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like, <clears throat> the idea is it's not just a little bit, but like, it's overflowing. It is richly in you. It is there, and it is there in abundance. So what does that result in? Well, the teaching and admonishing, like we've been looking at. But notice something else here. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. But then there's one more thing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the results of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly is the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing is letting the word dwell richly in you, specifically the singing with worship. And brothers and sisters, worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. And the worship is aimed at glorifying God, not you. It's aimed at lifting his name up. So we take in the word through worship. How? Sing. We're singing. Some of you don't sing. If that's you, you have a bad theology. Bad theology of worship. Or you probably feel yourself saying, all of life is worship. I mean, that's true, but you use that as an excuse for not singing in worship. Because when we're talking about worship specifically, it's exactly what the word just described it as. Singing. What what are we singing? Oh, the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. That's that's worship right there. That's the narrow definition of worship. That's what we're being commanded to do. That's what it looks like when the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. That's one of the things that happens. We're coming together as brothers and sisters and we're singing. Yes, all of life is worship, but that's not is what in view here. So if you're fooling yourself by saying, well, I, I worship all the time, great. Then use your voice when you're here on Sunday mornings. You want the word to dwell in you richly? Then sing. That's what it says. Sing. You need to receive this word. You need to believe it. You need to act on it. You need to, you need to live it out. Men, let me talk to you. That don't sing in that, that soft voice. Besides the fact that it sounds kind of effeminate. <clears throat> and, and don't sing in that mumbled voice. Like, sing like you believe it. So you want, you, want, you want to be the, the head of your house, 
then the key place you should be showing your family how to worship is right here on Sunday mornings. Right here. You want to lead. That's where you lead. That's where you start. Right here. Show your family how to worship an amazing God. That's leadership. That's, leadership isn't bossing your wife around. No, leadership is right here. Showing your family, leading them. Singing loudly. Some of you are like, man, I have, I have trouble engaging in worship. Well, then sing louder. Serious. When you are singing loudly, it is hard to focus on anything else because you have to focus so much on the very words you're singing. Try it sometimes. Some of you need to. But what are we doing in worship? We're remembering the great things that God has done for us. We're singing about the great God that we serve. We're singing and extolling his attributes. How can we not have that come from our lips? We should be at the point where when we finish worship, we should be like, one more song. One more song. Not for us, but because God deserves it. We could be here 168 hours each week. It would still not be enough to give God the glory that he deserves. So 30 minutes, a little bit, not too much to ask. You're distracted? Sing louder. Trouble focusing? Sing louder. There's a guy who went here about 15 years ago, always late for worship. Always. Someone asked him about it. He's like, I'm just here for the word. Well, guess what? He had, he had a, a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of heart knowledge. And, and that's a major disconnect. To not realize as a believer you're called to worship. I mean, the scriptures are replete with it. Look at, just briefly, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's quoting here from Psalm 22, verse 22. What is, again, what is he saying? I will tell of your name to my brothers. I mean, there's what's called the Hebrew parallelism here uh, from at least the Old Testament being seen here in the New Testament. I will tell of your name to my brothers, and then it, it expands on it in the second part of the verse. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The, the, the second part just expands on what the first already says. It gives us uh, more insight into what is being said. I'll tell of your name to my brother. What is he saying? Well, we're singing in the midst of the congregation, right? So, I mean, part of worship is, is it's, it's directed towards God, but it's, it's, it's a corporate thing. 
It's like we're singing to one another towards the Lord. I will tell of your name to my brothers. James 5. Look at James 5 just briefly. Is anyone among you suffering? Verse 13, James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. What is he supposed to sing? Praise. Praise. Let him sing praise. We're commanded to do it. So worship and the Word are so intertwined. Many times when we're singing, we are literally singing word for word a psalm straight out of the Bible. Or if we're not doing that, we're singing a paraphrase of a Bible passage. Or if we're not doing that, we're, we're singing about one of God's attributes. Or if we're not doing that, we're talking about how great and amazing He is. We're extolling His name. All centered from the Word. It's basically, worship is putting music to the Word. Worship is putting music to the Word. And worship has an effect on your soul. It ministers to your soul. How many of you have come in here on a Sunday and you've either been discouraged or just depressed or downtrodden and you're in the worship service and the Lord ministers to your soul? He lifts up your countenance. I mean, it's actually not for you, just FYI. The worship isn't for you. But what happens you end up benefiting from worship. Why? Because you're doing the very thing you were created to do. The very thing you're created to do. Worship and praise your heavenly Father. Worship and praise an amazing Savior. The very thing you were created to do. So yeah, guess what happens? When you walk in obedience, the Lord blesses that. When you come in here and you're giving it your all for Him, He ministers to you. And I'm not like a big uh, music person. I love worship, but I'm not like a big music person, period. I know some people are like major music people. You know, so if I'm in the car, I'm like usually listening to a, a podcast or something. But listen, if I'm discouraged or downcast or troubled, then I'm, I'm putting on worship music because it impacts me. It impacts us. On the way to church on Sundays, I always listen to worship. Right? I'm trying to get a proper mindset, a, pr a proper heart set, if you will. So that why? So my heart is where it needs to be to come and worship the Lord. All these things fall under that first command and the only command in Colossians 3.16. Dwell. Dwell. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Literally, let the Word of Christ keep house with you. But here's the thing. The word is not like, <clears throat> you know, some servant that you've hired living in the back quarters. It's not like your teenage son living in the basement. It's not like your grandchild that you got a little room for them. No, it's, it's the master of the house. The word is the master of of the house. It rules over the children. It rules over the mother. It rules over the father. Everything is subservient 
to the Word. It should dwell in your house. What does Dad say? Yes, great question. Even more important, what does the Word say? That is the true king over the house. The Word overrules the Father. Of course, the man of God will have his Word in line with the Word of God. When he doesn't, he will repent, change his ways, reorient his living. But he will make sure that the Word is there dwelling. Dwelling in abundance. Showering his wife with the Word. Showering it upon his children. Why? Because of what it does. Because it alone, it alone tells us the path of salvation. It alone shows us how to please our Lord. So it is the word that we should dwell throughout the house. When, when we're doing that, when it, when it dwells throughout the house and it's dwelling in us, then guess what? Then we're back earlier in Colossians where those things that we're told to put on, the compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all, love, then, then those traits will be there. Those traits will be there. They'll be present. They'll be overflowing. So we're going to have Justice and Laura, uh, I'm going to have Justice and Laura come back up. This is our opportunity to do that third aspect of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, the singing. And we'll have one of the ushers go bring the kids back in. The singing. And men, I want to, I want to hear, I want to, I want to hear everyone sing, but I want to hear the men sing. I want to hear the men sing. Lead your family well in singing and in worshiping our great God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a great God. You are the only God. You are the one true God. There is no God besides you. And you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the result of hearing your word should be to shout out how amazing you are and how great you are. So we're going to do that now, Lord. We are going to sing and worship you, the holy triune God. Amen.